Dear GTM strategists, welcome back to the entire new season of the podcast GTM Strategist. I have been away for some time because we had to launch the book and a couple of thousand copies later, I can say that the launch was a big success. Thank you so much for all your support and I'm much looking forward to continue our conversation to unlock a bunch of other GTM best practices and secrets. But today we'll start with debunking a couple of myths. Um, it's my pleasure to introduce you to Alexander Estner. He's my colleague from Munich, Germany. And when we talked, it was so apparent that a lot of our clientele that we help is literally facing the same problem areas in their GTM strategies. So today, Alexander and I will go and debunk a couple of myths that you are probably familiar with. For example, build it and they will come. If only we had a pre-trial slash product-led growth, then thinking that Google Ads is your go-to-market strategy, it's much more. Uh, but nevertheless, I'm just so much looking forward to hear this conversation from two different perspectives. And I'm sure that out of 10 plus bonus myths that we will present today, you will capture some value for your business as well. Enjoy the show and let's hear it from Alexander. Hello, welcome back to another exciting season of the GTM Strategies. With me is Alex Istner, and I have been following his content for a year. He has a cool checklist what to do in terms of P2P SaaS growth hacks and just like GTM things that you should be doing. But we connected very intensively on LinkedIn. So he has been supporting our launch. He is like an awesome content creator himself with a very unique, maybe more a little bit of a German um, speaking background. But nevertheless, I'm so excited to invite him to talk to you. What are kind of the barriers or misconceptions that we are facing in our GTM journey? Because I literally feel that just like the latter, how you are progressing in GTM has so much to do with your personal development, with your development as entrepreneur. And there are sometimes like roadblocks that we are experiencing and we know rationally that we could be doing better, but we still feel this way and we can make some stupid decisions on the road. So Alexander, Alex, thank you so much for being here. Is there anything else that you would like to share before we dive into the nitty gritty? Yeah, first of all, thanks, uh, Maya. Great to be part of your podcast today. Um I mean, honestly, I need to uh, thanks first of all, thanks Concrets to your new book because uh, it arrived yesterday yes. and it, it's on my wish list. Uh, it was on my wish list for Christmas. So I'm really looking forward to, uh, for like the, the holiday season, uh, season now and uh, it's top of my reading list. Um, I mean, I can do a quick intro about myself if it helps. Otherwise, go, 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 go. Just okay. go. Sounds good. I mean, as you probably hear, I'm not, as you said, like I'm not native speaker in English. So I'm, I'm German, living in Germany, Munich, in the south of Germany. Spent my whole career now. It's like almost 10 years now in the startup world. Um, so my background is I originally studied business, uh, kind of my whole life was re really interested or fascinated by entrepreneurship startups. And I, I must admit that I'm not coming from an entrepreneurial family. So there was no role model kind of in my, in my family, but I was always fascinated by the fact of building something, right? So the zero to one 
really having like an impact. And uh, this also like then turned out that I've joined as a first commercial hire, um, and like a fast growing SaaS enabled marketplace. It's called Eversports where I stayed five years and learned basically everything from, from the ground up, right? Like about sales, about marketing, about growing a startup um, from yeah being myself the first hire to uh, more than 100 employees uh, at the time when I left the company. Um, and in 2019, then I've co-founded a SaaS for, for creators, which basically enabled them to monetize their audience with live streams, videos on demand, subscriptions, and so on. But uh, fast forward, like unfortunately, like two years later, I left the company in early 2021, took some time off um, as I wanted to start a new SaaS business. And while I had a lot of basically time to, um, yeah, because I was not working anymore, I started with pro bono mentoring sessions for, for founders and I took some time to write down all my learnings. And this actually then turned out to be my the starting point for what I'm doing right now because I got awesome feedback about the mentoring sessions, got good feedback on 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 the content, which then later on turned out to be my yeah my newsletter, my Substack. Started to post daily on LinkedIn, and actually those founders asked for more, right? Like they wanted to have not only one-off sessions, uh, rather like continuous uh, help on go to market. And this is what I'm doing right now since two years. So um, helping those founders uh, go from zero to one million. Um, and over the last two years, worked with 20 plus startups now. And this is uh, how I really recognized all those myths about go-to-market, which we're going to explore today, I guess, in our podcast. Right, Maya? Can't wait. Can't wait, seriously, because it's so obvious that you have walked the talk. And whereas you've made a lot of money for somebody else, I'm totally happy that you are like on this uh, path to just like empowering other people and have this healthy business developed, also productization in terms of your checklists and like other services that you offer. So of course you will do another software in your life, but let's focus for what is mission critical at the moment. And let's go to what you curated to be like the biggest mistakes, the biggest like barriers on the GTM journey that we have. And the first cognition that probably resonates a lot with all our technical audience is that we are building a product and we are magically waiting that it is going to sell itself. What are your thoughts? Do you have any examples? Please comment. <laughs> um, I mean, this is really like a good one and I hear quite often. And um, my answer basically is you can have a really, really the best product in the world, uh, but without marketing, without sales, Nobody really knows about it, and this is how how will you sell it, right? So if nobody ever uh, see your product, um, yeah, nobody will use it, and nobody it can be the best product basically in the world. So it's always about I think if you have great features um, that make the life of the easier of the user easier, um, it's always about how you present these uh, features to the users. So you need to tell them basically how those features enable them to do things they could not do without your product. And then we are talking about sales and marketing again. So I believe every product needs to have a good go-to-market, a good sales, good, good marketing. Otherwise, um, it will be hard for you. So the way how I see it is I think you need sales marketing to attract clients and a good product keeps them. Um, so, But a product alone, like a good product alone is probably not enough to to really grow your product 
And that's amazing. I'm just like coming from another like part of the spectrum here. Um, I know a lot of people that are very competent in marketing and sales, right? But if they are selling shit, they will never be able to deliver on their promises. And it's just like increasingly important in this day and age of AI generated products and whatnots to just like have a solid value proposition. And that like kind of leads me to the next question. So this is not another meet that we will tackle, but do you have like any point of view in terms of product market fit? How do you know that you have a great product? Yeah. Um, I mean, I I think there are different ways to measure product market fit, right? Uh, One is definitely, I would say, retention rate. So do you see that people stick to your product? Um, I think this is a really good one, like a quantitative approach to product market fit. Obviously, there's this, it's called Sean Ellis test. So basically, you ask users uh, how likely they would recommend your product to others. Um, so this is another good metric to, to keep an eye on. Um, but honestly, I think between you and me, I think it's a lot on qualitative approach as well. So if you talk to customers, you kind of feel if you have product market fit. It's it's I believe it's really like kind of, I don't know, maybe like laugh, right? You feel it if it's true, like you feel it, right? And I think it's pretty similar to product market fit. But obviously, I think there's both approaches, like the quantitative approach, you should measure metrics. But honestly, I feel, I believe you feel it as well. Totally. And you probably know sooner that you don't have it than than you have it, right? Because if you have it, things are just like magically right. There are a lot of people coming to the product. They are like retaining well. They are eager to take the paid plans and just like referring each other on a rate that you cannot really capture. So it's a moving target and it's definitely something that we should monitor on a like regular basis, as you said. Yeah. And that leads everything, us. Everything gets easier, right? As you said, like once you have product market fit, it's like, magic. Yeah. <laughs> cool. So, what about like the next meet that you mentioned? It's all about like this product-led growth notion. And I just talked with somebody from Switzerland before we hopped on the call, and he said, "I'm so sick and tired of just like hearing again and again that we should have a free trial." And the second meet that you mentioned is just like having a free trial will bring more people to our products or whatnot. So what are your hands-on experiences when it comes to this? Yeah. Um, so what I see or what I hear a lot is that uh, founders tell me, hey, I think we should go for a freemium model. Like we need to add a free plan to grow faster. And um, my response to that is always First of all, go deeper. So understanding why the founders really think they need a free plan. And I believe like most of the time there are two reasons. One is that the founder fears that the users would not pay for the product if it's a paid plan. And then my answer is basically, hey, you're not solving a big enough problem, right? You just delay the the decision in the future. So if if they use the, the free plan, but they will never convert to a paid plan, then basically you're just delaying the decision in the future. And you're not solving a big enough problem. So it's more about going back and uh, uh, finding out how you can add more value to the product. So they are willing to pay for the product. Or I hear the second thing is it's about, uh, yeah, but we need a free plan because we want the users to test the product. 
And then I think the answer is go for a free trial, right? But not forever, like having a free trial for two weeks, four weeks, whatever it is. So there are ways to explore the value of the product without without, without having a, a free plan forever. And and last but not least, I think there's a really good article from Jason Lemkin who says, if you want to build a $100 million business, you need to have 50 million active users to make a freemium model works which means like 50 million. This is like a huge market. So most it's of the product... a country in Europe. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And because if you assume, let's say, a 2% conversion rate from 50 million active users, I'm not talking about registered users, 50 million active users, this like 2% conversion to pay, this means you have uh, 100,000 uh, users. And if they pay like, whatever, like $100 uh, a year, you have a $100 million business. So what I want to say here is like for most startups, I would say 99% freemium, model, freemium models are not a good idea in the early stage um, because, yeah, because of the problems I, I told you, like delaying the decision, not solving a big enough problem. And most of and most of all, I think you're not having a large enough market to really get freemium working. Fascinating. Maybe it is a regional difference and this is like a very good transition to the next point that we will be talking about. But you know what I also like realized in practice that sometimes people are just like giving away too much of the value for free, right? So at least like here in our region, uh, like in the South, there is like a common notion that, okay, like um, you, you should give them everything and then pray that they will pay <laughs> because then you will be worth Worthy and deserving of their money. But um, it comes down like beautifully to the pricing issue because if the product is like too good and gives away free everything, what do you have left to monetize? I mean, you could go with seed packages, you could be punishing the adoption, as I like to say, as more people are getting the value out of the ecosystem, but could be happening as well. And that's a wonderful transition to the next point that we will kind of mention here, which is when it comes to analyzing why we lost a deal. So your hypothesis, the like argument that you often hear is that we were just too expensive. And I think this will be a wonderful discussion because again, we come from a very different cultural background. So why do you think your people think that they are too expensive? Yeah. Um, so my honest opinion on about that is I believe founders hope that this is the reason that uh, customers don't buy the product because it's too expensive. So I think in theory, this could be true, right? That too expensive is the number one lost reason. But what I see most of the time is really that being too expensive is not among the top lost reasons. It's, it's rather the opposite. I would say that uh, most startups, as you said, like undercharge for the product, um, but it's not that they... Um, charge too much much and that's the reason that they that they lose clients so i believe first of all they undercharge and secondly if this would be the true that they're losing a lot of um, deals because it's too expensive it's mostly not because of the price tag it's more about how they present the product it's basically they are bad in explaining the value of their product to their customer so basically it means the customer don't see the value in your product that really 
is the reason to pay for for the product, right? So it's more about it's a, a sales or messaging problem, marketing problem, and not so much a pricing problem. Exactly that. And I was like also thinking because I come from a business school myself, and you know when you have these charts, supply and demand, and hypothetically people should be the lower prices but it's not always the case that you are playing the adoption game right as you explained before beautifully sometimes you need like 50 million users and my immediate association was like that's a country in europe but nevertheless sometimes you just have to make the bank and playing just like this game of maybe serving fewer clients but by adding higher value added, by just like switching the numbers a little bit, it can still reflect in a very healthy business model. So since we are both working in Europe a lot, do you think that just like our companies without any specific founding opportunities, what are they better set up to do? Like, should they test product market fit and business model at the same time or just like invest the shit out of getting 10K users and then preferably pray that they will kind of figure out the business model? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's a good good question and I don't have an easy answer to that. What I believe is pricing is super important for go-to-market but it shouldn't be, especially like I'm, I'm working, as I said, with founders from zero to one million. It's really like early stage. So it's more about finding a model, like a value-based pricing model that's kind of in the in the price range that makes sense. But it's not about optimizing, I would say. It's not about, it doesn't really matter if it's $90 a month or it's $150 a month. Uh, it's more about you need to find the, the right sweet spot of pricing that that you see customers are willing to pay. And I think later on along the way, once you scale the business, I think you then can start to optimize your pricing model, um, especially if you're funded, right? It's a bit different, I would say, if you're bootstrapped. I mean, then obviously 10, 15, 20% more MRR can uh, have a big impact. Um, but for, for funded businesses, I would say... Um, Sure, pricing is important, and I think it's 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 mostly important about finding the right model. I would say, like, what's the value metric you're charging for? Uh, do you have the right plans? But not so much on is it ninety nine or is it hundred twenty nine the right pr pricing per month? Fantastic, Alex. I would love to talk about the elephant in the room now, which is just like um, the value metrics and value pricing. I mean, everybody would love to do it. But can you share some story, some example of how companies figure that out? Because I kind of feel that often it sounds good in theory, but the best we can do in reality is a proxy of it. So do you have some hands-on experience with this? Um, yeah. I mean, first of all, I think it's important to understand what a value metric is um, and Obviously, the most well-known, I think, is user-based, right? So you charge per, per seat. Um, but there are also like good examples like Stripe. You take a percentage of revenue. Or if, let's say, you're a, we both run a newsletter, right? So it's maybe subscribers is the value metric for us because once we have more subscribers, it's like the value our newsletter tool brings us is, is higher. So I think it's a lot about, um, to answer your question, like, talking to the customers and get a pretty clear understanding 
what the product really delivers to them. And sometimes it's not as easy as subscribers, for instance, uh, or revenue. And then it's about finding a good proxy. And most of the time for businesses, I would say it's either you're kind of reducing costs or you're increasing revenue or you make the, the team more productive or more efficient. And then it's maybe about saving time, time, time on doing some, I don't know, instead of doing it manually, you automate things. Um, and then it, I think it's your job to do a, like a, a best guess in the beginning. So like a calculation on um, what really the value is for the company. And then once you have more customers, really validate if this is true. Um, I think that's the, the approach I see. If it's not a super obvious um, value metrics, of course there are, I think, businesses out there where the value metric could be quite clear. Um, I think subscribers is a good example, I would say. Um, but yeah, happy to hear your uh, your thoughts on that because I think we could cover like probably like hours about. No, uh, no, no, no. We shouldn't. We shouldn't because we have like seven more meets to untackle. But as you said, like talking with users is ultimate. So I just did the pricing exercise based on the value metrics with one company who has like an ad tech platform, and we were like, what those people would ultimately like to get out of this? What would be fair for them to play? And, and of course, like the business is only successful if like their teachers are successful, right? If they are making money, they see like a lot of value transfer for the platform. And this was really interesting for me because like there is still a fixed maintenance cost. So we cannot be performance only. We have to do like a little bit of a bundling, a little bit of more usage-based pricing as well in order to just like, you know, because if you are competing against like Teachable and Tinkific, it is very, very, very difficult to be differentiated, to just like make a fairer offer, more differentiated offer than somebody else. And like the way how we did it in practice is just like, okay, these are the features that we have. These are the potential value proxies. So what is really important to the user? And this was not like blind shot exercise. We literally had to go back and do 20 customer discovery interviews per segment in order to figure that out. I mean, we're still testing if this implementation was successful, but I think it is much better than just like saying that we should be 10% cheaper than Tinkific and maybe we can attract more users. That's a dangerous hypothesis and it's definitely not setting you up to succeed. So I'm totally aligned with your methodology but you know how it is. Every company is different and sometimes you have to go through several rounds in order to make it because there isn't a single pricing genius on this planet that would just like shoot the price and make you multi-millions. Absolutely. I mean, I think one other, uh, I mean, it's not a myth, but something I see quite often in pricing is rather that they early stage companies start to try to copy the big players, right? Like notions or mirrors oh, yeah. of the world. And they try to add two or three value metrics plus feature gating. So it's super complex. So my advice is mostly keep it super simple, right? Go for one value metric, have three to four plans. Don't limit on features. Like don't, don't go for feature gating unless there's a good reason for doing that. Because your focus on, on the product should be just ship as many features as possible, right? Build the best product and um, managing and maintaining different plans, especially if you gate features in different plans, it's it's complex, right? And it's also hard to know, is this new feature now a premium feature? How does it look for the basic feature, uh, for the basic user? 
So um, unless there's a good reason for, for feature gating, I would probably not do it, doing it in the early stage. Um, so go for easy one value metric, free for plans and no feature gating and probably ideally something with user or seed base. But if it's not like, if it's not used by the whole company, I would also not go for user-based. And uh, I mean, this is a completely different topic because also user-based pricing is, it only works if, if there's a reason that uh, users are not sharing accounts. Totally. And just like when you mentioned this feature gating and whatnot, you need sample, you need like real product analytics and your own product samples in order to figure this out. And what you said before in terms of competition is a beautiful ball pass to the next meet that we have to unbank. And this is just like this weird notion that AKA we don't have any competition. No, we're unique. We're the best. (laughs) If somebody said that to you, what is your initial reaction? How do you debunk this one? I mean, it's funny, right? But I really hear this frequently that companies tell me, I don't have any competition. We are the only one who's doing that. And my answer to that is this is not true um, because the way how I want, I, I like to look at competition is to separate between three types of competition. One is really the direct competition. So companies that really do exactly what you are doing. Um, and here it could be true that you only have a limited amount of direct competitors. If you don't have any competitors, I would even argue that you probably are on the, on the wrong track. <laughs> because that you're not uh, you solving the real problem, right? That exactly, the problem doesn't exactly. exist. Exactly. And so having a, a few direct competition, I think it's even good. Um, and the second type is indirect competition. I think uh, April Dunford done a, done a good job on... She, I think she calls it alternative solutions. So basically other ways um, the user can achieve the same results. This could be Excel. This could be manual work. This could be, I don't know, patching together non-purpose made tools for that or hiring someone. Uh, and the last one is basically not doing anything, right? Like the status quo, so sticking to what they already do. And actually this is the number one uh, competitor, I would say, because most deals you're losing because they do nothing like they stick to the current solution they stick to the status quo and the reason why i really like if you think about those three types of competition is because that's how you need to position yourself in the market because that's how your prospects think about um you and your direct competition because this is basically how they evaluate if you are the right choice for them or if they stick to the current situation or if they go for like an indirect competitor. Um, And that's how you should also think about competition. It's most of the time, it's not really about direct competition. I rarely in the early stage hear that uh, founders tell me, yeah, the number one lost reason is uh, they choose uh, our direct competitors. Most of the time, it's really like they do nothing, right? They stick to what they do right now, or they patch together some non-purpose tools, which is closely related to the um, the current solution. Gosh, I love it. We have like so much shared reality together because I'm deep into the positioning as well. I'm doing it with my friend, Matej Persholia. So, uh, sorry, Andre Persholia. He's much better at this as I am, but nevertheless, like 
always in almost any positioning exercise that he did. And I mean, he has done 200. Um, there was like, do nothing or just like, uh, it's not my problem for the next quarter. And that made me really think hard how we can incentivize businesses because like nobody would like to be a vitamin. Everybody would love to be a painkiller, right? And just like in terms of if you are really competing against like doing nothing or a freaking Excel sheet, what is your fighting chance? Like what's left to do? Uh, how, how you mean that? Like, did, uh, what do you mean by yeah. that? If uh, you had like, for example, a prospect or a client that would say, okay, like this looks like a very nice tool, but maybe like next quarter or in six months we could reconsider. Is there any way that you saw in practice that you can like whip this urgency into this or you just say, okay, I will back up for now and you contact me when you're ready. Yeah. I mean, I think they're like, also again, like you need to go deep. I think like either you missed, uh, like you did a bad job in the discovery. Like if you talk about a sales led model and you are really talking to the prospects, I think then you did a bad job in, in really like finding out the pain points and make it clear to the, to the, to the prospect that they have the problem. And that there's also like a, like a reason to, to move now, like basically, uh, um, negative implications right like what happens if you don't do anything so make it clear that the current solution to stick to that doesn't really solve the problem so there's a negative implication of of not switching over to your solution um, or even like you're targeting the wrong icp right so it it could also be the case that they don't have the problem and then then it's fine i think if they if they um, don't consider your solution. Um, so I think it depends a bit on um, why you're losing them. Um, and creating urgency is obviously also like, it's not so easy in practice if you are in, in sales. Like there are some techniques how you can create urgency. Um, but yeah, it's it's. I, I think what's not really working is like what everyone everyone thinks it works is hey we have a discount until end of the month right so that's the reason why you need to sign up now uh, that's not the way how you create urgency i mean if they are already interested it can incentivize a little bit of things but like me as a seller i would just go and say okay then I will present this to your competitor and thank you so much for your time. Maybe they will be more perceptive to this deal. So um, I don't know, we can talk again in future and not that directly, but nevertheless, it would be like loss aversion technique, right? It would yes. be literally like, if you're not going to do it, like maybe somebody else is going to do it and have the first move advantage. And the second yeah. one that I love to use for framing in just like, like, Listen, if you invest like 10K into this, how likely it is that we are really not going to convert like two or three customers or whatever you need in order to make this an ROI positive investment? I mean, you have everything to gain here and very little to lose because I can give you a service guarantee or whatnot, but how likely it is that we are really going to blow this over and this can help but it cannot convince them if they are just like genuinely disinterested in solving the problem this is how probably i would tackle it yeah i think so
Perfect. And then we go to the wonderful world of channels when you wrote that we run Google Ads and LinkedIn Ads. And I kind of giggled that, haha, GTN strategy is not only channels. So <laughs> what are the mis mismatches here? Yeah. I, I mean, I think you said it in the, the right way. I, I believe, well, not I believe, what I see is that a lot of founders um, first of all, have a misunderstanding of what go-to-market strategy is. So it's not running Google ads. It's not like posting daily on LinkedIn. So I think it's important, first of all, to understand there's a difference between growth tactics, which is running Google ads, which is posting on LinkedIn, which is doing outbound sequences and go-to-market strategy. So the way how I see it is I like to separate between three things. One is the go-to-market strategy. This is all about getting crystal clear on ideal customer profile, about positioning, a messaging, value proposition, pricing strategy, sales process, a sales-led, PLG, hybrid. And once this is clear, like it comes down to growth tactics, which is then again, like as I said, like doing outbound content, uh, PPC, affiliates, like all the different channels or tactics that are out there. And the the last level, I, 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 it's on the daily base. It's like the growth activities. I think things you and your team need to do on a daily, weekly, monthly base. So this is kind of your input, what you do, right? It's It could be, I don't know, sending 10 emails a day to your ICP. It's commenting on, I don't know, 10 influencers from your audience. It's So basically the things, the, the activities you need to do in order to make the growth tactics work. But everything like this all only works. And I mean, that's where your and my expertise lies in. If the strategy part is, is solid, otherwise you basically, you just burn money, right? On ads and none of those tactics, none of those activities will ever show any meaningful conversions. So you're just burning money without having any good, uh, like without seeing revenue basically. Um, and this is also like when founders approach me, and I think this is happening quite often that they tell me, hey, um, Alex, uh, we are doing a lot of LinkedIn posts. We are doing a lot of outbound emails, but we get zero responses. And then they think the problem um, is most of the time not that they do not post enough. That, so it's not on the activity level. It's not about they post not enough. It's not about it's they... It's not they, an input problem, right? Exactly. It's more about a strategy problem. They target the wrong people. Maybe the positioning is wrong. The way they present their product is wrong. Maybe the messaging it really doesn't resonate with the with the with the ideal customer. So they they miss message market fit. Um, so a lot of times when when you don't see any results on the activity tactic um, um, level, it's not. Well, most of the time it's not an operational problem. It's more about the fundamentals are wrong. But I'm genuinely so happy that you also touched on this like input part because sometimes, you know, people just think that they will post like five times on LinkedIn and then like business is going to magically turn over. It's not like this. I mean, you need to create critical mass when it comes to content and other things. You cannot always throw money at your problems. So you can like invest 5K in an advertising campaign, but you will still not understand 
understand why was this happening. As Alex said, like it could be the wrong messages, it could be the wrong ICP, it could be like literally whatever. So you still have to be very diligent about making sure that we are doing the right things because it's so easy to get caught in this vicious loop of doing hard work but on the wrong fronts. So we need to question this on a daily basis as we are in the GTM stage. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really important to do things, measure things, iterate if it works. If it works, double down on that. I think this is also, I mean, this is maybe a good uh, yeah. uh, thing for the next myth because I think there are also other founders who approach me or probably also you and tell you, hey, we want to do all channels, right? We want to be present on everything. Like we want to do PPC, zero content, outbound, uh, affiliate, like podcast, but basically everything at the same time. And um, I think this is tempting um, to do that. Uh, but uh, it's re also really hard. And hard means each of the channels need specific expertise they work differently this needs different resources and resources mostly means money and this is what's limited for most early stage startups so i think it's way better to double down on one two channels that really work uh, instead of investing in all different channels but none of them are really really good amen the next one When it comes to channel, it's also very dependent to the ICP, right? Because you are literally seeking to go in where your target audience already is. And just like the channel selection, it's only not like you dependent. It's also target customer um, dependent. And when you are thinking that your target markets are startups, scale-ups, as well as enterprises across all different verticals, all different industries, you are kind of shooting yourself in the foot because you will never have the resources in order to gather them all. And when you have a founder that would like to target everybody, how do you tackle this, Alex? <laughs> uh, I mean, first of all, I think it might be true, right, that uh, in an ideal scenario in 10 years, your product could cater uh, like different types of companies and different audiences, like different uh, Uh, regions uh, and so on from prosumers to enterprise companies but this is not i think the initial customer profile and i think that's what you should uh, i think you call it early customer profile right exactly um, because i didn't want to have this like accident of because icp also means like ideal customer profile and i felt that it is like a little bit confusing that everything is called icp that's true um so yeah uh I think like this does not really work. I mean, that's what you said, right? It's, it takes so much re resources to cater different uh, segments, especially enterprises completely different to the prosumer SMB worlds. Um, so um, you should definitely focus on your early or initial customer profile. doesn't matter how you want to call it. And I think it's really important that you understand or everyone's understand that the initial or ideal customer profile is more than a job title and company industry plus region, right? So our, like a, a powerful ICP is really like, first of all, a combination of ideal personas. So this could be the user, the end user who is using the product, but also the buyer persona, the one who is taking, basically taking the decision. Those can be the same person, but most of the time those are different personas. 
plus uh, there's the ideal company, right? So the, the company those people are working for. And for each of those um, like personas and companies, a powerful ICP really have or like includes, um, I mean, I've worked on our ICP framework. We can may maybe link it afterwards, but it can. Yeah, sure thing. It's a legendary Miroverse template. Yeah. I mean, it became a hit overnight. We will surely link it. And it includes like more than 40 data points, right? So it's really about Fantastic. going deep into the into the personas, into the company. This includes jobs to be done, pains, challenges, metrics, daily activities, software they use. But I think something that's really, really important and I work mostly with founders on is identifying trigger events or intent data. So basically that you get a clear understanding what's the right time uh, to reach out to potential people or to potential companies because they did something very specific that has a correlation to the problem you're going to solve. Which That's then also really maximize the chance that uh, you get positive responses, right? Because it's relevant for them. You use the customer information to reach out to them. Yeah, we really got to share this uh, template. It's uh, obligatory by now because it's such sort of a like heavy lifting and it's so like difficult to figure it out. It's not like locking yourself in a room and doing like a three hour brainstorming exercises of what animal your company would be. But mm -hmm. nevertheless, it's very well research driven. So we should definitely, definitely share this. And I support this 200% because like the majority of personas that I've seen in my life are a bunch of stereotypes and bullshit. So that's why I'm on an active quest in order to correct this, to make this right. And just like the template that you shared is a part of a solution. Yeah. And this should also be, I think, like a living document, right? Uh, so this mm -hmm. should be shared across the team, across the founders, across all the employees, because it's like a steady iteration. I think like every demo, every onboarding call, every customer uh, feedback, uh, any support call can really um, drive relevant information about uh, about the customers and then you need your job as a founder is to build this into your ideal customer profile then um, so especially in the early stage i think this is always evolving it's like you have a first version you go out talk again to customers you learn more and then you iterate iterate and and so on until you hopefully find like a version that's a bit more steady um, but uh, i think it's a living document that's important Cool. Alex, are you ready to go to Turbo now? To Turbo, yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Okay, the next one has a little bit to do with what we were already discussing about the free trial. So we will grow by using product led. So just like let it all out. Um, what is product led good for and where we should be a little bit more careful when we are implementing this? Yeah. I mean, PLG is super like popular right now, right? And I think it's great. I would even encourage every founder who's starting now to build the product in a way that it enables self-service, like that basically doesn't uh, need any human touch. But this doesn't mean that you should always do it, right? So it's more about you should build the product that it caters a PLG model. But I think there are good reasons in early stage not doing it. And I think mainly two reasons. One is... I think there's nothing more valuable than talking to potential customers on a daily base. And you do so if you have demos, if you have onboarding calls, if you have support calls. 
because they give you a lot of feedback, right? That's what you touched earlier on the ICP. And of course, there is like there are companies or SaaS products that are a better fit for PLG and others that are uh, not a great fit. And um, there are some criterias. I think rather like PLG works good if your MRR, like your pricing is rather low. If you have fast time to value, this means if a user signs up and there's a clear path to to the aha moment, so to, to really see that, hey, this 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 really helps me. And uh, if the product is not too complex or if it doesn't require, I don't know, connecting all your other tech stack, if it doesn't require inviting all your other employees. Uh, so it's also better if it's working in a single player mode, meaning I, as an employee, I just sign up. I experienced the value because it was not complex. It was easy to to come to the aha moment. And there is a free trial, right? It's a rather lower MRR free trial model. Um, so I explore the value. And then once I'm convinced, then maybe there's a way to expand um, over time. Meaning sales-led is, I think, better if it's higher MRR, if it's a rather complex product, if it's more like a top-down approach. Um, so the department or company needs to decide if they want to use the product uh, and not it's not so much working in a single player mode. You rock at turbo mode. I have not <laughs> anything to add. <laughs> but the next one is probably just something which is like, I don't know, I would call it a little bit German. So you wrote that like a prospect should see all the features in demo. And I was like, okay, I really don't have a hands-on example during that. But what exactly did you mean? Like with all features in demo, do you want to bore the shit out of me and take me through one hour demo? What what do you have in mind? I mean, maybe this is really maybe a cultural, cultural thing, but... Uh... I'm I'm doing a lot of shadowing, right, of, of demos. And um, I really see a lot of founders, they show everything they have. And I, I think the reason for that is they love their product. They are a bit, uh, they are proud of what they've built. Um, but a good demo is not a, it's not a product training, right? It's not about showing the prospect everything you have in every single detail. And especially also on the on the on the what you tell them is it's not about hey you click here and then this windows open and if you click here then this CSV file you can upload so you basically it's also like how you present it right it's like you show something on the screen uh, but you tell a story like you tell a use case to something that can they can really relate uh, to uh, and then you engage so I think. To come back to the original myth, I think like I see a lot of founders showing everything they have because they are proud of that, and they do it do it in a way that it's more like a one way presentation, like it's sixty minutes, forty five minutes. I'm presenting you all we have in the product uh, and the prospects. They they kind of like in a cinema, right? They they relax, they they <laughs> and just watch you uh, uh, how you basically present the video, uh, like present the the product. Um, so I think there's a lot of, I do a lot of work with the founders, really like training them on how to do a proper sales demo. Um, and for me, it really comes down to following a structure uh, because this is also something I see. Like a lot of demos I follow or like I shadow, it's like in the first minute, the founder is screen sharing and jumping directly into the product. And then it's 45 minutes showing every single feature. But a sales demo, for me, it's it's a meeting, right? It's like 
there's like an intro and outlook. So basically you tell the prospect, hey, this is the expected outcome of the, of the meeting. This is what's happening the next 45 minutes. Then you do maybe a discovery or a recap of the discovery, depending on if you have a one-step or two-step sales approach. Uh, this probably is like the first 15 minutes or so. And the, the discovery is really important. And then you really jump into the product and only show the features that really solve the um, discovered uh, pain points from the from the discovery. So this is, again, like maybe 15, 20 minutes, really like then showing the product, but in a super engaging way. So asking questions and it's not like, uh, re please relax and now watch me for 20 minutes, how I show you everything in the product. So really about like getting engagement. Um, yeah, and then last but not least, it's about next step summary, right? So you need to summarize what you showed them, pain points, solution, and then talk about next steps. Um, so you need to work on, it shouldn't be you talking 95%. It's more about, it's a meeting, right? It's a conversation, like it's a sales conversation. It's not uh, like, it's not a presentation. You're not on stage. It's uh, It should be like 50-50 or something like that. So prospects also engage and ask questions and then it's uh, then it's a good demo okay now i get you and it's definitely not a german thing because just like today i was on like a couple of calls one of them was with estonia and the other was was in saudi arabia and whenever like a founder said listen now i have to walk you through the product to show you the demo for you to really understand what we do here it's just like jesus please no I mean, I don't want to watch you clicking the screen and like troubleshooting for the next 20 minutes. Just like tell me what are the benefits, what does this do and why should I care? I mean, literally, you should entertain me just like upfront in order for me to even be willing to comprehend and listen to your presentation. So this one is spot on and you, um, I hope to get more of your materials when it comes to the structure of good demo, because that at least yeah. for the tech founders is very difficult because we tend to be very much fond of our features and proud of our work, like you said. So you're definitely onto something very big and very interesting here. Okay. Then we have number nine. This is, we do all at the same time, outbound, content, PPC, SEO, affiliate, events. We have probably touched about this when it comes to channels, but in addition to what you already said, that there can be like one to three channels, what else are you renting against here? Yeah, I think we covered it in the beginning. So um, yeah, it's it's really about... Testing different channels. Uh, once you have a strategy, like once you're clear on messaging ICP, test different channels. Um, could be really like every week, every two weeks, you can test different things, but don't try to, like it's more about the mindset, try to find something that works. And if you see early signs of um, of success, um, double down on that, right? Especially if you're early stage, if your budget is limited, uh, go for channels that um, that show good results. And also keep in mind that, I mean, there are some channels that take net longer naturally, right, to get results. So SEO partnerships are good examples. I think if you start SEO today, you can't expect results, I don't know, in the next months. Okay. It's more like six months plus, I guess, if you have real results. While other channels like Google Ads, for instance, or Outbound uh, drive immediate results. Um, 
this is also why most of the times I work with founders, we do a combination of content marketing, uh, PPC, outbound, because you see results tomorrow. Um, so it's it's a good channel to um, to also figure out a message market fit. Cool to have quick feedback loops. Alrighty, and that kind of leaves us to a pre-last point because then you have a bonus point. But nevertheless, when it comes to acquisition, I mean, everybody feels that channels are sexy, right? But if your product doesn't deliver the value, the curve of retention will just flatten, which we already know that it's not a great sign of product market fit and your overall adoption curve shouldn't look like a dead person EKG. But nevertheless, um, so acquisition is sexy, retention is not. Why should founders care about retention and LTV as well? Why haven't we really won if we just acquire more customers to the product? Yeah. Uh, I mean, you touched one of them. I think even the, mo the most important one is if you have bad retention rate, so that's the opposite of churn, obviously. Uh, it's an indicator that you did not find product market fit. This means people churn, they stop using the product because they don't get enough value from your product. And um, like this is one one thing, like one one truth about why why it's important to care about. But the second one is also like churn is like a leaky bucket, right? So you put money on top for acquisition, uh, but then like on in the bottom you are losing customers. So basically, this means. You're spending money, but you're not growing because at the same time, at the same speed, you're losing um, customers. Um, and this is bad, obviously, because this means like you're spending a lot of money, you're running out of money and you're not growing. Um, so it's it's instead of like spending more money than on top of the funnel, it's way better to improve uh, your retention rate and uh, and focus on having good cohorts, like good customers that stick with the product. Um, so if you see bad churn rates, I think you should work a lot on retention, understanding why they churn uh, and improve that before you spend more money on acquisitions. Perfect. And I love the bucket analogy as well. So your last tip is don't let GTF strategy be like a part of an agency or like a consulting job. It should definitely be co-creating. So as we are both productizing, of course, we are like eager to share a couple of genuine truths and like commonly understood facts. But the best strategy is always proprietary. I completely agree here that you cannot outsource this responsibility and these insights because nobody ever will understand the business better than you do. Uh, do you have anything else to add upon this? Because I was just like, as I saw this bonus tip, I was like, oh, yes. <laughs> I mean, yeah, no, I think you hit the nail on, on uh, you, hit, you hit the, the nail on that. Um, it's, I mean, I hear it quite often because founders approach me and tell me, hey, can you do the go-to-market strategy for us? And um, my answer is basically no, right? Because it's the founder responsibility to um, to build uh, the first go-to-market. Um, and I'm, or probably also you, you are just helping them to do the right things at the right time, to keep them accountable, to share best practices. So to basically to reduce the trial and error to, um, to um, uh, master go-to-market. But it's still on them to do the operational stuff and talk to customers to really understand 
how to build a product, how to communicate with them. So basically all the things we covered uh, previously about go-to-market, it's it's their job. Um, and I think once you find something that works, like once you find first sign of go-to-market, first growth, then it's also time to maybe hire your first sales manager or marketeer. Uh, so it goes from basically... Uh, founder sales to founder-led sales, right? So you have a go-to-market playbook. That's something you can teach your new employees um, because that's the second thing I see. It's not about agencies. Maybe there's another way that founders tell you, yeah, I'm not I'm not into sales. I'm not into marketing. So we hire re- really early like a marketer or sales manager because they need to um, convince the first customers. And uh, I think this is a pretty bad idea because if you as a founder, you can't, convince first customers to use your product like an employee cannot do it for you so you it's your job to to be close to customers and uh yeah get this first go to market playbook uh, going i love this okay alexander we have like a little minute 30 seconds for just like directing people to the best link. So we are linking your ICP persona. We will be linking your B2B templates, how to do the growth with these check sheets. If you are like founder led on Father first, uh, <laughs> what else are we missing? Maybe your LinkedIn, how can people connect? Yeah. Yeah. Let's do that. Um, we A can... Substack. Substack, I think that's good. Yeah. Like the newsletter, it goes out bi-weekly, uh, LinkedIn, daily content, um, and yeah, there are some some workbooks I can definitely share in the in the in the, in the notes. Super, let's do it as gifts for our listeners. Hey, you're a busy man. Thank you so much for this delightful conversation and for being like an awesome colleague on LinkedIn. Very much enjoy your work. And I cannot wait that we do a little bit of a collab together because, you know, like this episode was really interesting because we agreed in a lot of points, but we still like were managing to build upon each other's findings and just like whatever is going on in our lives. So I thank you so much for this intellectually vivid discussion. Thank you, Maya, for having me. It was a pleasure. Cool. Take care and let's go to market. Ciao. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Before you go, 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 I have two pieces of news for you. The first one is that the GTM Strategies book is finally available on Amazon. We have a Kindle version and a printed version. And I was just like so surprised, so stunned to hear this feedback from all around the globe. Of course, I knew that the book is an excellent fit for product managers, for growth managers, and also founders naturally, especially the technical ones. But I was very surprised to hear back from investment bankers, industrial industrial designers and whatnot who enjoy the content as well. So I definitely hope that you will find it useful as well. Hope that it is a book that will definitely change the, the way how you do GTM. The second piece of news is that I'm writing Substack now and it's brilliant because I'm kind of sourcing from what I'm really working on with my teams, right? So we always start with this realistic problem that appeared in the real world. Then we provide frameworks and tools, how to tackle it. And you know what? I would actually love to invite you to give me some hints. What would benefit you? What would you like to read or learn more about? Because, you know, content creation system should be a feedback loop. Uh, So definitely reach out on LinkedIn or email if you have some ideas or some desires what we should be talking about next, even guest nomination. Thanks so much and let's go to market.